you can't talk about silo without talking about the levels. Um, there's over a hundred levels in the silo where society is divided by levels and classes and professions. You know, socially speaking, humans have always created classes, a, a pecking order, if you will. And, and today in America, that divide among people um, feels so evident. Um, but there's one particular aspect of it, and it's the narrative of privilege. Um, that many who have it don't want to believe it, whether it be male privilege or white privilege. Um, in, in this world you've created, people are, you know, quite literally trying to move up levels. Talk to us a little bit about the sociology at work there. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carlisle Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Hugh Howie, a New York Times bestselling author. Hugh has penned the hit series Silo, which has now been made into an Apple TV series by the same name. He also has countless books, stories, and graphic novels to his name, including Machine, Learning, Sand, and Beacon 23. Hugh, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me, Andy. So we were talking about pre-record, and we're going to get to the series in just a second. Um, you know... Are are you coming down from cloud nine or where where are we? Are we at eight, seven, six, five, or are we above nine? Where are we right now? Yeah, you know, it's funny, this whole process, ever since the short story took off like 11, 12 years ago, I've I felt like I've been on cloud nine and somehow it just keeps going higher. Um, I haven't I haven't felt anything below that. And but this has been like one of the best parts of the of the wild ride so far. I'm always fascinated to sit down um, with literary figures and especially people who've written such a, a diversity uh, of things. I mean, there is not a single genre that you can tag to as, oh, this is the guy that writes this, you know? And I think kind of the best figure to point to is everybody thinks of Stephen King as the, the I guess, the the master of horror, right? But he's written so many things outside of, of that genre. And same too with you. I mean, as you look back at kind of your start and creative writing, you know, what was it that was influencing you at the time that you felt like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? The I think the book that made me want to be a writer was Ender's Game. Um, 
I was 12 or so years old when I when I read that the first time. And I, I just love that the the main character was like someone around my age doing incredible things, you know, because when you're that age, you feel like an adult. You just feel like adults don't treat you like an adult. But I, I think we, we forget how, um, you know, how independent and uh, brash we our minds were at that age. Um, and we were we were little humans, but everyone treated us like kids. And here was a book that said like kids my age can save the galaxy. And I think that influenced the first book that I wrote 20 years later, which was like a young adult um, space opera. And it would have been really easy to kind of stick with that genre. I think once you find, um, here's something I can write, you think it's the only thing you can write. So you just keep kind of staying in that world. And I, I'm lucky that I just have, have had like a wide interest in what I read and, and started branching out and trying different stories. Um, because I, I wouldn't have, you know, discovered um, how much I enjoy writing this dystopian fiction that um, the Silo series and the Sand series has has done so well. And then, you know, Beacon 23, which is this um, kind of uh, very philosophical, emotional, um, uh, stranded in outer space, like uh, grown up story that, that's so far beyond like what I thought I was going to be writing when I started out. And I've been rewarded for it, like trying different stuff to help me find things that um, that readers wanted, you know, so uh, I, I just didn't pigeonhole myself and it, and it worked out for me. Imagine on that kind of that first book and, you know, a publicist says, I think this is classified as a space opera or, or did you give it that genre? <laughs> Who labeled it that way? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, space operas just have a certain... Um, there's there's some little indicators that tell you you're writing a space opera and uh, like Star Wars is is definitely a space opera and um, it's hard not to be influenced by them they're just so such a huge part of popular culture um, but um, having you know a, a cast of characters that um, have this big uh, epic um, journey uh, told over many chapters um, and, uh, just uh, the, the, the sweep and the scale of the story is really what makes it the, uh, gives it the opera moniker. So before we talk about this incredible Apple TV series, I'd love to talk about, um, one of your other works, the, the wayfinding series, this isn't post-apocalyptic there, there are no zombies involved. Uh, this is just kind of a, a glimpse into life. Um, so I, I wonder if you'll tell us a, a little bit about, um you know wayfinding and and why you chose that as a motif yeah wayfinding uh, i've spent a lot of time sailing it was my first career before um i made it as a writer i was a yacht captain for 10 years and lived in my own boat for five years just sailing around and when i first started sailing i didn't have a gps i, I just had a sextant and used the the stars and like recognizing land masses and um um even you know uh, the, the great wayfinders can, which is how the Pacific was was settled over the years. It wasn't people just getting lost and drifting on currents. They were really advanced uh, navigators and they could use cloud formations and uh, the flight paths of birds and the temperature of the water um, to find, you know, familiar land masses and to chart uh, the seas and make it home after, you know, exploring for long distances. Um, and there was something about... Uh, that 
method of navigating that reminded me of like how we try to navigate through life. Um, we don't have a really good chart, you know, uh, no one has a, a, a GPS for how to make decisions in life or understand their own impulses and um, their habits and why they behave the way they do. Um, and what I've found through for myself was like just looking at um, history, philosophy, psychology, um, trying to understand patterns over a long period of time to see what's universal and what's specific to a time and place. And the more you look, the more you find like universal human behaviors. And I started thinking of like navigating life in this wayfinding mindset and started writing my, my thoughts about it. And I had some, some friends who read it and said, man, can you publish these so I can read them on my Kindle? And so I started doing that and didn't tell anybody about them because I am, don't think of myself as a self-help person or a guru of any kind. This is, these stories are just me trying to figure out, you know, how I operate. And, um, but uh, they really caught on and, and it became like, uh, you know, kind of a, a hit little um, nonfiction series. Um, I actually stopped writing them because they were getting, they were getting such a big readership. I, I was really terrified of giving people uh, life advice because I, it's just <laughs> not my background. Well, um, you know, one of the unique pieces into it too, which is funny because uh, I'll, I'll kind of couch it this way. If I'm at a writer's conference and, and you're there and the zombie apocalypse breaks out and I have to pick one person who's on my team, you're who I'm going with because you are kind of infamously one of the best shape authors that's out there. And you, and you write about it in that series, you know, uh, the secret behind the diet and the fitness and, and all those things. Yeah. I, well, I think um, staying in shape is necessary if you're going to be sailing like you, especially sailing by myself. I was uh, my last big voyage was on a 50 foot catamaran and I was doing all the sailing uh, alone and just the forces at play are, are enormous. Even with mechanical advantage, like you, you have to be, um, in shape and also you can't really enjoy yourself out there if you can't tackle like whatever mountain or you know swimming challenge comes your way um so yeah i find i find a lot of benefit from just a uh, small daily exercise which is the same thing it takes to write a book it's just like daily application so let's shift gears in 2011 you released wool introducing readers to this um post-apocalyptic or dystopian earth where um, you know, remaining 10,000 people are, uh, live in the ground. Um, it's now a, a hit TV series. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations. Um, Thanks. you know, we'll get to the TV series itself in just a second, but I'd love to nerd out on, on, on the books itself. Um, you know, one of the things I love most about, uh, the books is that, um, it's been translated in a series that you can immediately immerse yourself into the world. Um, you, you, you seamlessly explore this new context and circumstances without, um, you know, feeling like you've gone through this long exposition about it. So, and this is the highest compliment I think I can probably give a literary author. You've, you've done it on the same level as Tolkien <laughs> in wow, Middle Earth, you know, just um, the way that uh, Tolkien did it with uh, all these kingdoms and unique peoples um, that it, you don't feel like you have to read a separate novel in order to understand the context where you are. So what's the process like of, of creating something completely foreign and introducing your readership to it? I think um, for me, I have to spend a lot of time living in that world before I before I write a lot about it. Like I have to um, 
kind of daydream a whole bunch of different stories and scenarios and people that might not even make it into the book. Um, I think Tolkien probably did the same thing where he had kind of the entire um, encyclopedia of the world kind of formed in his mind. And then he could tell a small story within that encyclopedia. Um, and I think that helps so that it doesn't feel like you're just tacking things on and and finding, you know, things are inconsistent. You kind of have to have uh, um, an, an overarching uh, holistic approach to the to the process. The, the key, though, is for me, when you start to tell the story is not to give the reader too much all at once. Um, and uh, when we work in writers rooms or work in, in Hollywood, we talk about having uh, a keyhole. And the keyhole is like the first bit of the world that you see as you're poking, you know, putting your eye to the keyhole and just have, okay, I can see one person doing one thing. And you want to focus there before you open the door and start to let the reader, the viewer into the rest of the world you're creating. Then, you know, in Star Wars, it's just, there's just a kid on a farm who dreams of flying one day. Like, we don't need to know about, um, you know, the Death Star and all the characters that he's going to come into contact with. You start with that um, and, and, you know, the call to adventure from, you know, this attractive woman, which, you know, later it's going to turn out to be a sister, but you know, we don't have to need need that lore then. I don't even think Spielberg or Lucas, sorry, had that lore at the time. I think he probably made that up as he got into the second film. Um, so, yeah, just trying to stay focused on a small thing that we care about and then letting elements of the world be revealed as we uh, get deeper to the story. You know, I, I know some writers and creators hate talking about their work and what influenced it. Um, however, creative people have the opportunity to create narratives and art that speak into you know how they see the world uh, what they're struggling with the, the tumult within our society so i'd love to talk about some of the the pillars of silo and your thoughts on its implications uh, for our world today uh, first the, the setting of this book is is often labeled as post-apocalyptic and, and the thinking about uh, you know robert kirkman's the walking dead or one of my all-time favorite uh, books cormac mccarthy's uh, um, the, the road, road yeah. you know, it's um, what makes post-apocalyptic context such a powerful avenue for for talking about life and society. I think it's the oldest kind of story. Um, the um, probably the reason we got into telling stories was to try to teach survival skills, come up with survival scenarios. So, lost in the woods stories, um, even for kids, you know. Uh, um the oldest fairy tales you know getting getting lost in the wilderness and, and all the adventures um or if you look at disney films you know it's a lot of characters like losing a parent or something and then now they're thrust into a different world and have to learn how to survive there um as we started uh sailing they became lost at sea stories or deserted island stories um when we started, you know, visiting other continents, it would be like lost in Africa or, you know, voyages to the Far East. And then we settled the United States and it was like Westerns. Um, all these stories take place outside of civilization, usually separated from our tribe and, and technology. And they're questions of like, what would, we, what would you do there? How would you fare? And in the 20th century, we, you know, flight became available. Uh, the satellite was invented. We, the GPS 
um, system came online, we photographed and explored almost every corner of the globe. And there was nowhere left to tell stories where people were separated from civilization because civilization had kind of met itself uh, uh, working around the other side. And now the only way to tell the same kind of old story of, of people lost in the wilderness, like the Odyssey and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, very, very first stories, um, is to uh, destroy civilization. You know, we, there's no more wilderness to go to, so now we have to create wilderness. And that's why we started seeing all these destruction films and, you know, earthquakes and meteors and uh, alien invasion, zombies. Um, it's why we have to put people surviving on Mars or on the moon or in space, like uh, um, uh, what was the one with, um, what's her name, in orbit, gravity. You know, like, even if it's just like off the planet, that's enough to tell these survival stories. So it seems like a new phenomenon, but it's only because we no longer have these wildernesses to place our characters in. We have to create them. Hmm. And the easiest way to create them is just to get rid of the civilization, you know, that we rely on. So I don't think it's an, I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think it's just a, the only way that we we can tell the same old story that we've been telling for a really long time. So there are some very clear rules um that govern the society um in this in this wool series um rule breakers in the worst case are excommunicated siloed outside of uh, the community sent into a toxic world what's going on there as you think about uh how we function as a society yeah i think one of the um influences in the story i was watching a documentary about um people on death row and i was just fascinated that um on the day of their execution, they often walked to the chair or to the gas chamber on their, you know, on their own. And they, they talked about this and how you kind of get tunnel vision and you just go along with what people are telling you because you're so um, uh, almost out of body in, in that moment, just realizing as the days approach, like what's going to happen. Um, and, and so I've always been fascinated by um uh, public execution and it's such a it's, it's such a brutal um permanent solution you know if you, if you get it wrong you've killed an innocent person it's just terrible but why people go along with it and in the story not only do people go along with being executed they do a favor to the people who kill them before they die they clean the sensor so people can see the outside world better and i thought of a way that you would um, manipulate people psychologically so that whatever their for their reason for leaving, they would go through with that cleaning, and it just became um, a puzzle for for readers in that first part. Like, why do people do this? And when you find out the answer, you kind of see why the book is called Wool, and there's all kinds of other little mysteries to unpack there. But it really started with like. Um, being really fascinated by our willingness to go along with, um, you know, the, the worst thing that could be done to us, really. Yeah, I remember the first time, and now obviously seeing it in the series of that connection, obviously, that piece of wool that's taken to the clean, the single camera by which society is looking at the remains of the world, given by the person they have given the ultimate punishment to. And I remember reading that and just sitting there with that. There's, there's so much there. Um, it's so layered and complex. 
and then you and then you realize at some point that the the wool is being pulled over people's eyes that mm -hmm. uh there's um you know this metaphor behind the the whole process which i found out later doesn't translate well in other languages so i when i wrote <laughs> this i didn't know anyone was going to read this story much less that we were going to publish it in over 40 other countries and people were having a hard time like why is this what's this have to do with sheep why is this called wool and <laughs> and having the wool put over your eyes isn't isn't an idiom in a lot of other countries. So uh, in Germany, the book was called uh, Silo and and other people um, kind of went with the same. It's kind of depends on what country you find it in, what, what the name of the book is. Hmm. You know, I love the imagery of, of a single cam a camera that, you know, views the remains of the world. How does that speak into uh, how we might see our you might say our capacity to tribalize and seeing things from a, a singular or closed-minded perspective. Well, a silo is, you know, they, they talk about that in business and in um, uh, other areas where being siloed means you're, you're um, not branching out. You're not listening to other um, uh, information or advice and incorporating it into your worldview. Um, it's a kind of a dangerous uh, trap to fall into. Um, and that, that metaphor is like very deliberate in the story. Um, I think the the wall screen was the, the first thing that I came up with for this story. In, in the book and in the show, there's this one screen that you could see the outside world. And on that screen is a really dismal view of the world. And I came up with that because I, I noticed that we were spending a lot of time getting our news from our screens, whether it's... Um, our TVs watching 24-hour news or our phones or our, um, our computer screens. And each one of those screens was a, was a very filtered view of the world, depending on not just like our, what sources we chose, but almost everyone in order to capture viewers shows like kind of the bad, the worst news. And what's that doing to our psyche? You know, I, I, I sailed into Cuba for the first time in the late 90s and being a child of the Cold War, I expected like a really hostile environment because of all the popular culture that I'd heard. Um, and when I got there, I found like the nicest people. They were so welcoming, um, had the best time and just, uh, you know, um, it, it, to the point that like when I arrived, I was, I was there kind of illegally. They asked me if I wanted my passport stamped. And I was like, yeah, but they were like willing to like not stamp my passport so I wouldn't get in trouble when I went back to the States. And um, it just struck me how different the world was when I went out and saw it with my own eyes versus the information that I'd gathered uh, even passively growing up. And I, I think that's very dangerous, you know, like the more you travel, the more empathy you acquire and the more you see the world through, a, I think, a more benevolent lens. Yeah. Plus the Cubans, man, they know how to make some good rum, good mixed drinks. <laughs> Good rum, and you know it's a tragic place. Like they're yeah. they they go without, and they've had a really really rough time because of uh, food embargoes and and other things, and and corruption and terrible political um, guidance over the years. But um, uh, the way they are about their families and um, the 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 quality time they spend together, it's uh, there's a lot to lot to learn, a lot of wisdom there. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so many complexities around around that but gosh i've got so many other questions about the book i want to get to so um 
you can't talk about silo without talking about the levels. Um, there's over a hundred levels in the silo where society is divided by levels and classes and professions, you know, socially speaking, humans have always created classes, a, a pecking order, if you will. And, and today in America, that divide among people um, feels so evident. Um, but there's one particular aspect of it, uh, the narrative of privilege, um, that many who have it don't want to believe it, whether it be male privilege or white privilege. Um, in, in this world you've created, people are you know, quite literally trying to move up levels. Talk to us a little bit about the sociology at work there. Yeah, I think it's very similar to what we see in, in our society. I, I think you bring up a good point that people who have privilege don't want to see it. And I, I think there's a really like a rational um, explanation for it. Like we all want to believe that we're fair and just people who, who want to see balance and for the, the world to be a fair place. Um, but uh, it, as humans, it's hard to give up any advantage that we have. So uh, wanting the world to be fair and wanting to keep our current advantages makes the only way to really have both of those is to uh, ignore our advantages and say the world is already fair and look for ways that um, that our advantages can be minimized and other people's disadvantages can be minimized to try to balance it out. Um, there, the silo is a, a, a very literal um, a kind of arrangement where we have a more like a metaphorical arrangement for our caste system. In the silo, you have like upper class people literally are on the top levels and lower class people are on the bottom levels. And then the middle class people are the ones who are like really trying to distance themselves from the bottom and aspire to the top. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just something I uh, witnessed by, you know, working, living as a vagabond on a boat, like as someone who's just broke in his early 20s and then working on yachts for the the, the wealthiest people in the world for 10 years and um, seeing what their lifestyle was like, not as someone who enjoyed it himself, but was um, in service to them in that capacity. And then I got off the yachts and started working as a roofer and, you know, making very little money, but my, my self-worth and my happiness was like through the roof because I felt like I had a job that had um, meaning and purpose rather than just being like a glorified bus driver for the rich and famous. And having that kind of diversity of views, like I, I almost, it was almost like someone who walked the silo and traveled from the top to the bottom. I got to see all of it. And um, I, I think what I, what I learned in that experience was very um, shocking to me, you know, that where, where I was happiest was not where I would have thought and that money wasn't the most important thing once you had made your, you know, got your basic needs met. And, and all of those experiences went into the writing of this story because I, I was dreaming up um, this world while I was uh, sailing and while I was working as a roofer. It wasn't until after both of those experiences that I sat down and, and wrote this piece. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. 
There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. I can imagine you've been asked this before, but I'll ask it anyways. You know, when you first wrote this book, um, what level and profession would you be if you were in the silo? Um, I would probably be living in the mids as a farmer, just because like, that's how I grew up. My dad was a farmer. I grew up on a farm. I was uh, working with him since I was like, just barely old enough to stand, you know, spending all summers and, and weekends through elementary school, like just following him around and learning and doing whatever he did. And uh, I always looked up to that profession. It's like the, one of the few that are necessary, you know, almost everything else we do are kind of unnecessary jobs that we've tacked on to um, uh, because of small number of people now can feed everyone else. It's freed up us to like have a career as a sci-fi writer or, you know, um, if you just look around your room, like most of the things that are made in this space were really not necessary until we had an abundance of food. So I, I think it's such a, uh, a cool profession and man, it would have been the only space in the silo where you're like surrounded by greenery and had a lot of UV light and, and rain and things that would have made you feel maybe not crazy. Where'd you grow up? In uh, North Carolina. In, oh, no kidding. What part? Um, a little town outside of Monroe. Well, Monroe is a little town outside of Charlotte. And then yeah, Waxhaw yeah. is a little town outside of Monroe. Okay. So I grew up in Apex, right outside of Raleigh. And we okay. live in right outside of Winston right now. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. Tobacco so, what, yeah. So what did you farm growing up? We had small grain um, when I was a kid. Uh, so wheat, soybean, corn. Uh, but my dad did tobacco and cotton, like when I, right before I was old enough to understand like what farming was. So a little bit of overlap with that, but he had a lot of acreage over North and South Carolina that, uh, it was a multi-generational, uh, farming family. So 12 years since the book released, do you think you, uh, would still be on the same level, same profession in the silo? Man, now I, I think I'd be a lot more subversive. I'd be probably someone who got kicked out for uh, talking up a revolution. <laughs> I'm more of a troublemaker now. You know, the government uh, in the silo feels, um, uh, you know, I said this was somewhat tongue in cheek, a bit authoritarian. Um, you know, the, the control, they control the narrative, what people see and believe about what's happening both inside and outside. You know, we're living in a time in which the narrative is that democracy within America is at, at threat. Um, you know, you obviously wrote this book 12 years ago, you know, if you were to kind of, you know, reshape the narrative today, do you feel like it still speaks into where we are? Uh, is that what you were trying to do at all? I think, yeah, it, I don't think a lot has changed. Um, also, I, I think it, we have a hard time remembering what the past was like. Um, like people have forgotten just how much domestic violence was happening in the 60s and 70s. There were bombs going off everywhere. Um, and um, in the 50s, McCarthyism, Congress was, they were at each other's throats way more than they are now. Um, before that, people were beating each other with canes in Congress and getting in fist fights and spitting chewing tobacco on each other. And before that, they were uh, challenging each other to duels and shooting each other in the streets. 
Um, we've had civil war, like literally, we've had more Americans die killing each other than any foreign threat. You know, all the other wars combined don't add up to how many people died in the civil war. And it was a smaller population back then. So the percentage of people who died was just astronomical. And I think we need to like look at the problems we have today to help try to you know come up with solutions. But I also think we need to look at how terrible the past was and see the progress that we've made. And and if you don't if you don't do that, you don't have a faith that more progress can be made. So I kind of I reject the idea that this is the most we've ever been at each other's throats. Like we just don't have we even in the you know the last uh, fifty years. The, if you go back 50 years, you had a lot of political leaders being assassinated. And now as much as we talk about it, and even discounting like the the violence on January 6th, which was like the worst thing that we've probably seen in my lifetime for political violence, um, it still pales to what was happening in the past. So like kudos to us for making progress, but also like let's let's really get our, our act together and make more progress quicker if we can. Uh, and I think we can. I'm an optimist. I think the world just keeps getting better and better. Uh, it's just hard to recognize that without also becoming like lazy and inured to making further progress. And that that's the challenge is that balance between appreciating how far we've come and being impatient to to try to get even further. Hmm. Acknowledgement of humanity and and leaving a legacy feels like an undertone of the entire series. Uh, you wrote, we are born, we are shadows, we cast shadows of our own, and then we are gone. All anyone can hope for is to be remembered two shadows deep. Uh, take us a little deeper here. Yeah, uh, you know, our grandparents are, are are as far back in our lineage as we really go. And if we're lucky, like our grandkids will be the last ones to remember us. Our great grandkids will, will, won't even know our names. You know, they'd have to look at a family tree and we'll just be abstract to them. Um, and even, you know, people who are considered famous are forgotten all the time. So I, we, we have a, a fear of our mor mortality and a desire to, to last forever, but um, we're lucky if our grandkids remember us. And, and that's the being remembered two shadows deep. Uh, and that's the, the most highlighted um, uh, line the last time I checked in the Kindle version of the book. There's something about that that really resonates with people because it talks about the ephemerality of our of our existence, and it's terrifying. Like we want to matter more, we want to last longer, and the cold hard reality is that neither one of those things are really true. And and what do you do with that knowledge? You know, for me, the way I've um, come to grips with that is like the the best thing that I can do is just make the people around me, um, you know, make their lives a little bit better and try to improve myself while I'm here. If everyone did that, um, just took care of themselves. Like in New York, if, if everyone just goes out and, and cleans the sidewalk right in front of their business, which a lot of businesses here have to do, then the city is kind of taken care of. And I, I think communities work the same way. Um, but it's, it's so difficult to do. And it's, and it's something that our brains just really have a hard time coping with. Tribalism, authoritarianism, isolation, classism. Are are you comfortable being designated as a, a sociologist and psychologist? 
Um, definitely not as a teacher um, or a profession, <laughs> um, but as someone fascinated with those things, it's, it's all I read. It's all I really um, study is, you know, reading nonfiction and trying to figure out like one more little piece of the mystery of our time here. Um, I think, uh, however you think we got here, whether this is a simulation or God's creation or evolution, um, that's one interesting conversation. Okay, we can talk about the origin. But beyond that, what we do know is that here we are, and the most interesting thing about us is our capacity to reason, our curiosity, our, our group um, discourse to try to uh, uncover the mystery of, of, our, of our existence. And, you know, that is, that's what this TV show and this book are about. Like, how did we get here? And what do we do from here? What do, how do we start now? Like, I, in, the, in the story, the memory of how they got there was like erased 140 years ago. And that's pretty much how, how I feel about our existence now. Like, here we are, but man, how did we get here? A, a history book doesn't really explain it. Um, it's just names and dates, but like, it took a lot for the world to arrive at this point. And now that we're here, how do we go forward? How do we make the best choices? And I, um, a lot of these conversations and in, in political discourse come down to like the two, um, the two main philosophers that we use to embody two very different ways of governing humans. One's Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the idea that humans are born noble savages and just let them be themselves and they'll make great decisions. And on the other side, you have the um, Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, the idea that the only way um, humans will behave is if you have a very strong um, uh, governing force keeping them in line. And those two philosophies are at odds. Both are ridiculous. You can't take either one to the extreme uh, because if you, if you have complete anarchy, we've seen what that looks like. People will just do terrible things. Uh, and if you put people in cages, that's not a life worth living. But how do you have enough rules for people to behave and still feel like they have their humanity intact? And every election, every uh, parenting decision is about that conflict. And that is the heart of this story that like the IT represents Hobbes and mechanical represents Rousseau. And you have a couple of characters like uh, Lucas who are, are torn in between. They're like, Lucas is this guy who's in love with Juliet. He's in love with a mechanic, but he belongs to IT. And he's trying to figure out how you navigate these two very different ways of seeing the world. And there's no clear answer in the book. Um, uh, as bad as the totalitarian um, leaders appear, they're trying to keep everyone alive. They think that if they don't do what they're doing, that people will die. And I think... Um, people on the left who judge folks on the right have to at least acknowledge that it's fear of losing um, their families and their civilization that makes them want to like, you know, have a stronger government and a strong military and own guns and lock things down. Like they're, they're scared and we need to like empathize with that. And I think people on the right need to look at people on the left who want social safety nets and all these things to prop people up that they're scared of like what happens to innocent people who just you know aren't lucky in life or have things don't go their their way and need to appreciate like like both of these sides have their hearts in the right place these have very different ideas on how to take care of people and i'm fascinated by that 
that conflict. Where does religion or transcendence fit into the silo? Um, I try not to write too much about it because I feel like it's uh, it shows up in the third book in the series. Um, it's I think religion is too often used as like the bad guy in science fiction. Like science is the good guy and superstition is the bad guy. Um, and, you know, there is some um, like myth of the founders and the people talk about the gods and the founders as the, the creators of everything. Um, and I think that's logical. Like every society has to kind of concoct like an origin myth or origin story about how they got there and, and try to find meaning through that. Um, but uh, a part of the um, totalitarian state is that you're not going to allow the church to be another, uh, you know, powerful force in people's lives. Uh, similar to like what Henry VIII did by creating the Anglican Church. He was like, you know, the Catholic Church, he, he wanted to be the king and have power over the people. And the Catholic Church had like a whole lot of power over people's minds and behaviors. And, and by cutting the Pope out of people's lives, he was able to simplify his power. Um, and so a similar thing is happening in the silo where you don't allow um, uh, uh, an organized religion to kind of take that role. But religion's played a big part in my life and my um, kind of wrestling with questions of faith and spirituality have, have uh, influenced a lot of my thinking and my own journey for answers. Hmm. I'd imagine being raised in rural, you know, Southwest uh, North Carolina, there was some sort of Christian influence in your life. What, what tradition were you raised in? I was raised Episcopalian and okay. we were super religious. Like we went to a camp meeting every year for it was 10 days of going to church three times a day. And um, uh, yeah, it was more coming out as, as a non-believer was more taboo in my community than practically anything else like uh yeah. you know you you couldn't be gay but you could do that before you could be an atheist <laughs> um and uh yeah it was really hard for someone who in my early teens just had more questions than than answers and you know would pester my uh preacher we, we went on all kinds of youth retreats and had weeks away from home where we were staying in like little Christian camps and I'd be sitting on the porch with my preacher and you know uh, reading all kinds of books and asking questions and um, really not satisfied with all the answers I was getting and had to finally kind of branch out and look for answers elsewhere and it was a difficult journey because it wasn't anyone there to to guide me other than like finding the right books and authors you know just by happenstance and, and having them lead me in different directions fascinating because now now that you say that but also thinking about kind of my own faith and spiritual journey to me the governance of the silo almost feels like the totalitarian nature of religious authority and controlling how people see the world and how people function within society and recognizing that if you go outside of that you're obviously ostracized and sent out into the world to fend for yourself and as they imagine inevitable death, you know, but how many of us who have deconstructed so much of that have found something on the other side that's wholly different 
um, and yet respectful of, of where we've come from. Um, yeah, that's how I feel now. And, and um, you're the first person to really point that out, but I, I, I'm bet some part of my uh, childhood journey out of, um, you know, very constrained thinking played a part in, in the structure of the story. Um, and I, you know, I think getting to a point where you're respectful of um, everyone else's journey unlocks the ability to learn from their journeys. I think um, for a while there, I was like the the angry agnostic or the angry atheist who was like upset that I'd been, you know, sent down one path with so much velocity. And I was like, yeah, man, I, I, I should have been, you know, uh, my curiosity should have been uh, celebrated at a younger age. And you get kind of angry at the system that took those uh, discovery years away from you. But with a little distance, I, I just learned to appreciate that um, people were doing what people had done to them as kids over and over again, repeating the same hymns and, and prayers without really talking about the, the deep philosophical implications of, of being human. And, and then, then you're able to go back and get some of the wisdom from your upbringing while you're also doing that with other people's experiences. Um, I'm probably a lot more spiritual now than I've ever been. Like I, um, the, I, I've gotten less sure about my answers about the world. Like mm -hmm. I have no idea, you know, there's, there's a mathematical um, almost certainty that we're in a simulation, which I try to reject on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I, I want to believe <laughs> this is real, but you know, um, physicists have gotten more convinced that like, at some point we will be able to simulate all of this. And that means that uh, to believe that this is real, we're the first ones to simulate things when the chances are someone you know, started doing that before, even if it's just the fact that someone else put the universe into motion. And I, so I think the weirder our theories get, the more we should just let go of that and think about how do I make my uh, life meaningful? And, and that gets you back to where you started, you know, back to where the, where uh, Siddhartha, uh, who became Buddha, where Jesus, you know, who became, you know, one of the most influential um, spiritual uh, leaders who ever lived, like that the questions that they were wrestling with are the questions that I'm eventually getting back to in my 40s. And that's just like, how, do, how, do, how can I be a good person? And how can we reduce suffering on the planet? And I, I love cutting through all the dogma and the stuff that we get caught up in that leads us astray and getting back to those simple questions. Yeah, Jesus kind of had a semi-popular saying, what was it? Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And if yeah. we live by the philosophy in our world. Uh, it's so hard to do. But if you yeah. if, if everyone lived by that alone, um, you know, that is that is all of moral philosophy in a simple sentence. And you know, the golden rule is all political philosophy in a simple sentence, but it's very difficult for us to be that fair and consistent with our behavior. So I'm, I'm going through this process right now. Um, I just finished my doctoral program, graduated, dissertation approved, all those kinds of things. And now translating this academic research into a popular press book and starting to circulate it among publishers. And I'm starting to get this feedback of things that they want to change. You You wrote this amazing short story that then became this book series and then you you gave it over <laughs> to executive producers and directors to do with it as they will how, how hard has that process been you know of take this thing that you created and make it their own it's been super easy for me i i i've seen friends wrestle with it um i've got a good friend who's 
book is in production now and like every change is like misery for for him but um i was in the the writer's room as we were creating the show and 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 encouraging even bigger changes it was the rest of the room pulling us back to the source material um so yeah for me uh nothing can change the book the book's going to stay the way it is and it'll always be the story that i told and let's tell different stories in other mediums so we did a graphic novel version of this there's been several audiobook versions which even though it's the same words like a narrator brings a lot of their own craft to it and their interpretation just in, in inflection um so i think you have to be comfortable with um multiple versions of the same story being told um we were just talking about religion like there's four gospels that tell very different versions of events you know like uh jesus's last words on the cross are different in different books and you would think this would be an important detail to get right but once you absorb all those stories enough time it doesn't really matter which one of those is right you you um you kind of incorporate all of them like he said it all at the same time um so reality becomes very prismatic and i think if you're if you've read the books and you're watching the tv show you can get hung up on the differences or you can realize that um these are different mediums one's very internal and one's visual and you know embrace that we have to tell a, a slightly different kind of story and and the key is whether or not we got the heart of the story correct which i think we have obviously the this first season covers the first book um that gives um, us i'm not sure we get that far oh okay all just right to, just to warn you um i don't want to spoil too much but uh we will probably take two seasons to tell the whole first novel so that means if i if my math is correct that gives us at least six seasons you know, to, to cover the other books, uh, are we eventually going to head into J.R. Martin territory and the show will start developing storylines beyond what you've written? Well, we've, I mean, we've done that a little bit just with the backstory of Holston and, and Juliet working together. I think, and I don't know how many seasons we'll get, like it's um, Hollywood can break your heart at any time. So you cannot <laughs> take anything for granted. Um, if If we were to get four seasons, from Apple, I think we could tell the whole story. Okay. Um, because I think uh, if you've read the trilogy, the second book is is a lot of origin story. And I think you could combine that with the third book and kind of tell the two of those together. Um, but it actually, what's beautiful about retelling it as a TV show is we have all the material to work with. And now we can figure out how do we tell the most interesting version of events uh, and how many really it's it's a question of how few of seasons we can tell the story across because you don't want to pad it and and add you know seasons where they're not needed like all the people working on this show will go on to make other shows and do other entertainment we don't need to just keep people busy for the sake of it uh it'd be great if you could keep this cast together but you know as a, as a fan of novels i appreciate this new medium of tv series that are conveying what oftentimes was um creative ravaging of something brilliant you know i think of how many stephen king books were shuttered down into two hours uh when they should have been an entire series and they're kind of learning that now um with with content so i think it's it's remarkable so you've got folks like will Patton and tim robbins and rashida jones and rebecca ferguson uh, i mean are, are you kind of you know 
are, are you there just kind of pinching yourself saying like, here's this thing I created and here are all these brilliant actors who are, who are putting this into life. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and those are the people in, uh, you know, on our, on our screens, but the people behind the cameras are like Academy award-winning film directors and people who've shot like some of the best uh, TV out there, the, the production uh, designer Gavin has worked on like the Star Wars prequels and um, is off doing incredible. Uh, I, I can't tell you the project he's working on now, but it's like insane what he's what he's doing now. He's one of the best in the business. And uh, from there, like just the entire production and cast has been top notch. And that's a credit to um, Apple's uh, excitement for the project uh, from the get go and and their, um, you know, their, the budget that they were able to work with. Um, so yeah, like I appreciate the miracle of getting anything made in Hollywood, but then to have the support that we've had for this project is another miracle. And then to have it turn out great is yet another one. And then to have the, the, the marketing team knock it out of the park and to have the public respond to it the way they have, like this just, no one should be this lucky this many times in a row. And that's how I feel every single day. Like I've somehow bought like 10 lottery tickets and they all hit. It's just been amazing. Well, all of that doesn't happen without good storytelling. And so, uh, you know, pat yourself on the back today for writing, creating this, this brilliant story. Last, last question, uh, kind of following some threads online, um, kind of hear that beacon 23 is maybe being cultivated into something? Yeah, it's actually two seasons have already been filmed and they're in post-production. So okay. um, we hope to get it out to viewers later this year. But um, with the writer's strike, uh, it's making, uh, putting the finishing touches on it. Um, probably not problematic, but communicating them to me and the rest of the team is tricky. Most of to have certain conversations. But um, as far as I know, like uh, we're on track to release that sometime this year. But yeah, I think two seasons is probably all it takes to tell that story. And we've already shot all of it. Wow. Our guest is Hugh Howie. He is a space opera writer from North Carolina. The series is Silo. You can stay connected with Hugh by visiting HughHowie.com. Um, Hugh, it has been a, a tremendous honor and joy Thank you for creating a narrative that compels us to to pause and consider how we see ourselves and our world and how we interact with one another. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate you having me on. It's been a fun conversation. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.